want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. The topic of our discussion this morning is communicating with our Heavenly Father. So I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. I want you to notice the assumption that this text begins with. Jesus says, and this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and when you pray. Okay, so this discussion on communicating with our Father in heaven begins with an assumption that God's children will communicate with him. And so as we move into it, I want to move into it with this call to fulfill the desire of God that we would come into his presence and enjoy his presence on a regular basis in our lives. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive also those who, have, are, who are our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This morning I want to make three observations about prayer and then move into a discussion from this text. The first observation I want to make is this. Prayer is one of the greatest privileges that comes to us through adoption as sons and daughters of God. Okay, because what it basically means is this. We have his ear when we cry out to him. So prayer is one of the great privileges of adoption. It is conversation where your life and God meets. Okay, prayer is where your life and God meet as you communicate and fellowship with him. We struggle in this connection with God because we live in a world that is profoundly distracted. We live in a world that is full of gadgets. There are so many things that can consume your time. And I won't bore you with a list of those things, but here's what I think happens for many of us. We bow down to pray. We get on our knees before God to communicate with him, which is the greatest privilege that we have. And we find that we are profoundly distracted. Things pop into our minds that pull us away from conversation with God. The cell phone rings. We think about an email. We think about the pressing issues of our day and of our lives. And so when we want to cultivate a deeper prayer life, we we have to fight this issue of distraction. And here's another side of it. For many of us at times, prayer can feel unproductive because we live in a culture of doers. We live in a culture of people who pursue goals. And so that time spent on one's knees before God or in quietness in your car on the way to work before God, it, it doesn't 
feel tangibly productive. And it's easier for us to get up and go and do something than it is for us to wait on the Lord. And so we need to learn to, to, to cultivate this, this sense that prayer is the important business of the children of God as our lives intersect with Him. The assumption in the context is that Christians are praying people. That we will carve out portions of time in our lives to connect with God on a regular basis. It's a passage of Scripture that sets up three contrasts. Five and six set up a contrast. Seven and eight set up a contrast. And then when you move into verse nine and following, there's a contrast that is set up. But when you pray. So he he raises an illustration of prayer. And then he talks about what prayer to God as Father, what it is like, what is distinctive about it. It's a passage, if my counts are correct, that contains eight mentions of God's name directly. Okay, eight times the name of God is mentioned if you work down through verse 18, the portion on fasting. Eight times. Seven times the name of God is implied. Okay, so in this passage, in 13 verses, I find 15 occasions where the name of God is either directly mentioned as our Father, or it is directly implied in relationship to his response to a request. This passage of Scripture is saturated with what it means to be sons and daughters of God. And any discussion about prayer should be saturated with an understanding that as we come, we come invited by God to enjoy time in his presence and to see our needs met. We are to be people of prayer. I think the way Samuel says this in the Old Testament, he says, he says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So the assumption of the text is when you pray, Samuel's understanding of that assumption is prayerlessness is the height of pride. It's the height of sinfulness. It's the height of self-reliance to avoid the discipline of prayer, communication with God, where my life and God connects. This text is all about that connection that we enjoy with God when we quietly pause in his presence to drink him in and to enjoy him as he desires for us to do. We are to be prayerful people. So as we work through this passage, I think what you'll find is three correctives and then a pattern for prayer. Okay, three illustrations of how to do it wrong and then three directives on how to do it right in contrast and then a simple pattern of prayer that flows out of the passage. So let's first of all begin with verses five and six. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. So the first thing we find is there is a prohibition in this text. Do not be like them. Like who? Like the religious leaders who Jesus in the context calls hypocrites, okay, which is a strong statement. What's the idea of the word hypocrite? Hypocrite literally means this. It means to act in the theater, okay? Most of you have seen the mask with the stick on it, okay, as a picture of theater. And the idea for hypocrisy is to be a person who lives under a mask, so the real person is hidden, and what is seen is the mask, the presentation, the way that the individual desires to be seen. So to be a hypocrite is to be a person who lives under a mask, gives a public persona, has a very different private persona. All right, And Jesus says <clears throat> the Pharisees were extremely skilled in making prayer a production, making it 
a show. In the ancient world, if you study through Scripture, you'll find that the Jews cultivated a pattern of praying three times a day. You can go back to the story of Daniel, where Daniel, three times a day, would seek the face of God. In the time of Christ, 9 o'clock in the morning, noon, and 3 in the afternoon were the times for prayer. Now, how is this working for the Pharisees? Because Jesus says they love to pray in the synagogue and on the street corner, which is interesting. Okay, and why do they do it? He says they do it to be seen by men. Prayer for them is a production. It's a show. And the idea is something like this. And if you read through some of the ancient literature, they point out things like this, that the Pharisees would kind of time their travels through the day so that when the hour of prayer was struck, they just happened to be in a prominent, visible place. And in that, Jesus is saying they are playing an act in a in, in a play, they're, they're putting on a show. They're praying for demonstration. And the thrust that Jesus is making in the text is very clear. Don't make and don't turn prayer into a show. It is not a production. It is a means by which we connect with God. And I think a more modern example was given by a, a prominent Boston preacher. After hearing the eloquent prayer of someone in his church, he made this observation. He said, that was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Okay, meaning he, he contemplated the prayer and says that was eloquent, but it wasn't offered to God. And so we need to be careful as we pray that we are people who are seeking to see our lives intersect with God's existence and being. God is not an audience in a play waiting to applaud worthy efforts in prayer. He is your Father. And it would be true for every father I believe in this room is that if their child came to them with an earnest, sincere, desperate need, that the response to the child would not be applause. It would be action. And the Pharisees were, were praying. They had turned this personal spiritual walk into a show to be seen by men. And what Jesus says is fascinating. He says they had their reward, meaning that that visible applause from men for the show that they gave is the end of the power of their prayer. They got, they, they postured for praise from men. They got it. They had their reward. But what are they missing? They are missing a vital connection with God. They are missing the purpose of prayer, which is to experience the power of God, undeserved but unleashed in our lives for our daily experience. So verse 6, he flips it over and he says, but when you pray, in contrast, go into your room, Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And the one who is unseen, your father, who sees, will reward you. Now, here's what's fascinating. Jesus, in this case, is saying, go into your room, go into your closet, close the door, find a private place. Most of the houses in Palestine had how many rooms at the time of Christ? Most houses had one room. So what is Jesus saying? What is he saying? He's saying, be sure that you find secluded private time with your Father in heaven. And it's fascinating. If you study the life of Jesus, particularly in the topic of prayer, what you will find is that he was a man on earth, though God, who desired to experience communication with his Father in heaven. And he sought out times like that. He says to you and I, go into a private place. You don't need to turn it into a powerful show of some sort. Your father is the God who sees in secret. And I love what Psalm 139 says. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for the darkness is as light to you. So folks, you're never in a place where God can't see. He is preeminent and present everywhere. Prayer is for us to be an act of humility where we obtain favor that is desperately needed from God. Blessings that are desperately needed from God. And the idea that one song that we sung, better is one day in your house. One day communicating with God, enjoying the richness of his presence. And it's what Jesus in this text is encouraging his followers, his disciples to do. Go before the God who sees what is unknown, who sees the struggles that you experience in your heart, who sees you crying out to God in private for the needs of a child who is slipping into rebellion, who sees the prayer of a maid who goes into their closet and pours their heart out to God over the brokenness that are present in their marriage. He sees in the dark and he hears those requests. And what he says is at the end of this verse, the father who sees what is done without show will reward you. So the first thrust that emerges out of this text is this. Prayer is not a production. It is not a show. The Father that you seek is more than ready and able to answer. And he's more ready to answer than most of us are ready to pray. So when you pray, don't turn it into something that's complicated and elaborate. Keep it simple. It is where your life and God intersect. Verses 7 through 8. He says, and when you pray, so this this ongoing discussion, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now, I want you to think about what this is saying. Do not keep on babbling. And the idea, very thrust, is don't be like them. What is the thinking of the pagans? The thinking of the pagans is something like this. Long prayer is effective prayer. The more words you utter to God, the more action you will see from God. Okay, that's the idea. I remember on my first trip to India, I remember being on the Ganges River at about 5.30 in the morning, floating down the river on a, on a prayer float, not a prayer walk, but a prayer float, okay, on the Ganges River. I remember at, at about, a, about 5.30 in the morning hearing this clang, 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 clang loud just echoing throughout over this river early in the morning saying to victor john what in the world is going on and the passage that randy cole mentioned was a passage from first first kings chapter i have it down here first kings chapter 18 do you remember when the prophets of baal were seeking to get god's attention by cutting themselves and crying out and praying and and just all of this self-mutilation or action to get God to wake up and to move into action. And eventually, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, maybe God is disinterested. Maybe the God that you serve, is maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's having a nap. He's, he's out for a break. He can't be accessed right now. And so they did. They, they cried out and cried out and cried out. And when Elijah finally came to offer his sacrifice, the gods had not responded. Elijah comes with a very simple plea for the glory of God to be revealed. And what happens? An immediate, instantaneous response from the God who is more eager to respond than we are to pray. 
And he doesn't give it in response to being coerced. In this text, Jesus is addressing a habit amongst pagans, amongst people that don't really know God personally. They think that they will be heard because of their many words. The assumption, if I pray longer, I am more likely to get a response from God, which says what about God? And it comes to the second point of our discussion this morning. It implies that God is in some way reluctant. He's resistant to answering your prayers and meeting your needs. So the second thought is this. Prayer is not intended to get what God is reluctant to give. Now, is the text forbidding earnest repetition? Earnest pleading. Okay, I think you would be hard-pressed to say that this text is forbidding sincere, earnest pleading before God. Because as I study the life of Christ, as I study Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I find him repeatedly falling on his face and pouring out his heart before God for favor to get through the struggle that he was facing. And as he goes, what does he say? He says, Father. Okay, Father is not a term about a God who is distant and reluctant and disinterested. It is about a God who has come near in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And has, by coming near, given us the privilege of being adopted into his family so that we can come before him with our earnest and sincere needs. What is forbidden in the text is repetition that sees God as reluctant to give. Because what does that do? That redefines God. It is an insult to him. If I think that I have to get out of his hand what he is reluctant to give to me. He says, no. He says, come as a son. Come as a daughter. Come in sincerity. Don't put on a show. Don't think that as you come, I am reluctant. Why? Verse 8. He says, don't be like those who babble on like the pagans. Instead, your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is an amazing statement. The reason the pagans babble on is to get God to give what he is reluctant to give. But the idea that we have to keep reminding him, and once you've reminded him enough times, he'll finally comply with your request and meet your need. The prohibition in context is present. He is your father, and he knows before you ask what you need. He has, folks, please understand this. He has never been surprised by a prayer, request, or need that you have offered to him. He has never been taken off guard. He knows what you need Before you ask him. Prayer is not about enlightening God to the true heart that you have. Prayer is about you connecting with God. Finding strength in him to get through the circumstances that you have. It is the means by which you say, God, I trust you more than I trust anybody else. So instead of thinking that action is better than prayer. I'm going to think that prayer is useful. Rather than useless. I'm going to think that prayer actually accomplishes something. When I come before the God who already knows my needs, the question obviously that comes to mind is, then why do we pray? Right? If God already knows, then the question automatically comes, why pray? Okay? I'll illustrate it to you in this way. When a child falls down and is injured, bloody scrape on the knee, and a stranger goes over to pick up the child and seeks to comfort them, what's the child saying over and over and over? Once they can get oxygen. Okay, because you know that they hit the ground and then there's that pause and you see their mouth opening slowly and you're like, oh, this is not going to be good. (laughs) All right. 
What does the child automatically cry out for? You know what they cry out for? They cry out for a parental figure. Not because the parental figure is more capable of meeting their need. But because the parental figure knows them personally and passionately. So God says, when you have a need, bring it to me. Enjoy your relationship with me. Trust in me. Because sometimes the answer to the prayer will be delayed. And in the process of that time of comforting, we go to the one who knows us personally. And so Jesus, as he speaks here, he says, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He is intimately acquainted with your ways, the scripture says. He says to us in the Old Testament, call to me and I will answer you. He is ready and he brings an abundance of power, of glory, of provision. Everything belongs to him. So don't turn it into a show. Don't think that you have to kind of wear him down to finally get what you want. Okay, sometimes we have trained our kids in that way. They beg and beg and beg. And then we finally, out of frustration, give them what they ask for. Many times we see our father in that way, and it is a shame. The privilege of of adoption is communicating with our heavenly father, who has, according to this text, already been watching over you. And when you come out of your distress and flee into his presence, you are not there to inform him. You are there to enjoy him and to rest in him and to be comforted in him. Prayer is designed to connect us to the Father and his infinite resources. And so Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Okay, so it's not a show. It's not intended to break reluctance on the part of God. Thirdly, and this comes out of verses 16 and 18, he says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. And it's a fascinating statement. At one level, when you read through some of the commentaries on this, it talks about putting color on their faces to make them look sick. So to take white ashes and rub them on the face, hair disheveled, not brush the teeth, okay? Just an abysmal representation that causes people to say, what's wrong? Okay, and then they just, I'm fasting. Okay, and the idea is that through this effort, they're going to get God's attention and earn the right to be heard. I think what Jesus is saying here is don't make it so complicated. Don't play the part. Don't look somber. Don't disfigure your face. You have a right to be heard because as you come, it is your father that you are praying to. So look at what he says. He says, I tell you, they have received their their reward in full. Verse 17. But when you fast, which is to indicate what? That we ought to have seasons of fasting wrapped into our prayer experience. It's part of our relationship with God. Times when we deny ourselves certain pleasures in order to connect more deeply with God. Okay, that's the idea of fasting. To bring special needs, to plead earnestly with God. He says, when you fast, put oil on your head. The idea is shampoo, wash your face, shave, brush your teeth. Eight, verse 18. So that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
So the third idea that emerges is this. You don't have to earn the right to be heard. It's not a show. He's not reluctant. And you don't have to earn the right to be heard. Why? Because as he, as he says over and over and over again, he is your father. He is ready to hear. He is not reluctant. He longs to have you come and cry out to him to have your needs met. I think what's saddest about this last illustration that Jesus uses, that it, it in a way distorts who God is. It says that if you deny yourself certain things, then you will experience certain blessings from God. It says that God's favor, his answers to prayer can be earned. That changes who God is. God responds to our needs because he is our loving heavenly father who longs to and desires to pour out his blessing upon us in response to our earnest request. He sees what is done in secret. It doesn't need to be a show. He will reward you. comes up in this text on three occasions. On three occasions, he will reward you. What is the reward in this context? You know what the reward is? That God will be responsive to the prayers that you're giving. Does he respond to the prayer of those that babble? Does he respond to the prayers of those that put on a show? Does he respond to the prayers of those who go out into public to look like they're fasting? The answer is no. What he responds to is that quiet, earnest plea from that quiet place. And here's the way I would encourage you this morning. Find a place in your life. I know for some of you the commute, you get up very early. Find a place. Turn off the distractions. Find God. Search him out. Know him. Do you have a place where you get with your father and where you connect with him? Cultivate a habit and a pattern so that it happens. If I don't cultivate habits and patterns in my life, what do we find? We find that we become prayerless. We need routines because our culture is so vastly and viciously distracted. When you come, come to him simply out of your honest and clear-cut need. I, I thought of, as I looked at this passage, I thought of Luke chapter 18, the story about the Pharisee and the publican that come before God in prayer. Two vastly different people. One utterly immoral, immoral and despicable and rejected in the culture. One highly respected. And so Jesus tells a story. He says, let me tell you a story that will help you to understand who God is. And it affects the issue of prayer. Two men come to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, a religious person in all his robes, got all the, all, all the, all the decorations on. He's ready for the show. And then on the other side, a distance away from the temple, synagogue, is a man who can't even look up to God. And he's identified as a tax collector. The wealthy religious man calls out to God, in a sense saying, uh, God, I'm here, and I've done everything that you required of me. At some level, I think I, I deserve a hearing. And so he's, he's putting on the show before God. And when you come over to the tax collector who was seen as having one of the worst reputations in the ancient world, he has his head down. He is beating himself upon his chest. What is that picture of? It's a picture of this abject sense of brokenness before God. He is frustrated with who he is. He's coming to the end of himself. He can't even look up. He is dejected by his sin. He doesn't think that he can break God's reluctance. He doesn't think that he can put on. He knows he can't put on a show. 
Because if he extends his hands in front of everybody and starts to talk about all he's done, it will surely condemn him. He has nothing to offer God. So he, he beats himself upon the chest out of frustration, out of brokenness, out of a desire for change. And very simply he says this, God, be merciful to me. You know what he does? He appeals to the character of God. He appeals to the rich, undeserved favor of God. Well, see, that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is, I have this right to come before God, but I don't, I didn't earn this right. This right was given to me as a son or daughter of God who was rescued out of my rebellion and put into the family of God by sovereign adoption, by the blood of Christ. And this is the way this man comes, understanding, God, I cast myself upon your mercy. The religious leader is saying what? Give me what I deserve. Right? That's what he's saying. I give tithes of all that I possess. I, I take care of the poor. I, I fast twice a week. I this, I that. I, I deserve a hearing. Over here, what's the story? Here's the story. Be merciful means don't give me what I deserve. But folks, what a glorious way for sons and daughters to come to their Father in heaven, who is God over all. What a glorious way to come to him. God, be merciful to me. God, I have these needs and I don't deserve your help. But I plead with you as my heavenly father to meet my needs today. Folks, when you come to God like that, you know what he does? He always responds. He always hears. And the hearing is always undeserved. Which makes us what? Not the proud person. It makes us the humble person who after beating ourselves upon our chest saying, I don't deserve this, we look up and realize that Father is listening. That he has given us by the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, proximity, a hearing, a right, a privilege, and a duty to relate to our Heavenly Father. When our daughters come home from college, it's, it's interesting because they have a whole lot of friends they want to catch up with and on and on and on. And as a dad, as a mom with my wife, Sometimes we're saying, hang on a second. We want to spend time with you. We want to hear what is happening in your life. We want to commune with you. We want to connect with you. Okay, and I think in, in this same way, Father in Heaven is giving us a, He's saying, don't do it as a show. Don't think I'm reluctant. Don't think that you have to earn a hearing. Just come. We want to relate to you. And that's the same way that God wants to relate to us. When your children come and sit down on the couch beside you and just hang out, want to enjoy time with you, soak that in and say, when they come and you have that sense of, it's good to have you home. That is the same way that Father responds as we come to Him. It's why He abhors the show and He abhors the things that distort who He is. My children come into my presence quite freely. They know they have access they don't have to change their demeanor and get all dressed up and cleaned up and put on a show to have my ear. They have it because I'm their father. Whether it is deserved or not, they have it by virtue of being our daughters. Since God is your father, then Jesus then rolls us over into what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And once again, it's set up as a contrast, isn't it? Verse 9, he says, don't pray like this, don't do this, don't do this. But when you pray, Pray like this. And what does he do? He submits to his disciples a model prayer. 
Sad thing is this. Because of our religious nature, our thinking that God is reluctant, that we need to earn a hearing. What have we done with the Lord's Prayer? We've turned the model, the outline for prayer, into a mechanical prayer that we repeat over and over again in the church. And what have we done? We have violated the immediate context. The thought is that by saying this in certain settings, we gain certain favors from God. Okay, and what have we done? We've taken the pattern for prayer and relating and connecting with our Father in heaven and turned it into a mechanical means by which we're trying to break His reluctance and earn His favor and put on a show. May God help us to look at this prayer and to realize the way that this very simply is stated. And I just, the fourth thought is this. Prayer follows a simple pattern or model. Okay, when you pray, he says, this is very simple. It's not complicated. It's not highfalutin. It's not hard for children. Children can pray like this. This then is how you should pray, which is a corrective. Okay, learn, Jesus is saying, to pray like this. And three ways he wants us to learn to pray. And just take this now against those other three ideas. Learn to pray like a child. With the childlike boldness and fervency. He is your father, Jesus says. So he says, when you pray, say this. Our father, intimacy in heaven, majesty. Okay, so it's just, this is an enormous statement. Learn to pray as a child to your father, who is majestic and infinite in his capacities, who is over all and limitlessly over all. Our father who sits above the sphere. That's the way the Bible says it does. It says that God is our Father who is enthroned, the psalmist says, in the heavens. It's an amazing thought. He sits in the heavens on His throne. Implication, He rules over all the world. That's your dad. That's your dad. So when you come, Jesus says, forget the show. He's your Father. He is waiting for you to come. To his throne in the heavens. And I just, in my notes, I just put pause here in wonder. Think about this. Jesus invites you to pray to your father who sits above everything in your life. There is nothing in your life that is outside the sphere of his influence, sovereign control. Nothing. Nothing. No circumstance in your life is outside the realm of God's control. It's an amazing, amazing thought. Know that he loves you and he loves to hear from you. 9 through 10 then says this. It says, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what that is? That is an invitation for God to act. Because every one of these statements is in the third person. You, hallow, glorify your name. Exalted God. You bring your kingdom rule in my life. You do your will. That's the idea here. Three pleas that God would move into the life of his children and work and bring great and powerful and glorious effect. All in the third person. I think the last one, in a sense, captures all three of these. There is in this a sense of urgency that I may get out of the way of what God is seeking to do and allow his will to be done in my life. Because here's the way that Jesus phrases it. Do your will where? On earth, which is where you and I live. 
I think it would be foolish to say, God, I want your will to be done on earth, but not in my life. And I think these three statements, glorify your name, bring your rule in my life. I mean, literally, God, govern the various spheres of influence and circumstance in my life. How I act at work and treat my fellow workers. How I relate to my wife as your daughter. How I interact with my kids. How I function in my community. God, let your will be done. This is an amazing and powerful statement. Do your will on earth, which is where? It's where I live. So what's the flow here? Learn to pray like a child. Secondly, learn to surrender and realize that anything short of full surrender is not surrender. Okay, the only kind of surrender that is true and real and authentic is a complete surrender of everything. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays this. He gives them this as a model of prayer, and then he lives it out in the most horrible set of circumstances possible. In the garden, he says, Father, I would like this to happen, but I want your will more than I want what I want. See, that's what we're saying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done where? In the sphere of my life. And here's what I think we need to reckon with, and I think it's why our surrender is often not comprehensive. It's limited surrender, which is no surrender at all. This kind of prayer is costly. If I say, God, do your will on earth, which indicates in my life, then it means that I may have to engage myself in Christ-like sacrifice to see the purposes of God done in response to prayer. You see, he wants to work. He wants to glorify his name. Jesus encouraged us to pray that that would happen, that his rule would be seen. That his will would be done on earth. Just how is God's will done in heaven? You know how God's will is done in heaven? It is done perfectly. But there is a freedom from pain and sin because God's will is honored completely. And what God is saying to us in this prayer is, come to me like my son or daughter. Secondly, as you come, surrender everything. Which leads me to this thought, the greatest optical, obstacle to full surrender to the will of God is my kingdom and my will and my desires. You see, the reason that God is not often given full control in our lives is because we want control in our lives. And the thing that gets in the way of God doing his will and purpose in my life is my will and my purpose. What do I need to do? I need to surrender the control of my life to God. I remember when I was 21 years old and I hit that point and that thought became clear that I was living in rebellion against God because I was not fully surrendered. I had parts of my life given over to God, but I could not say that I was practicing full surrender. God wants us to be people that are fully trusting and fully given over to him. What area in your life this morning does he want you to surrender as you come to him in prayer? What enslaving habit, what relational pattern of anger, of worry, of resentment? What does he want to shatter and break off your life as you come saying, Father, do your will. And I know that it's going to cost me. I know it's going to require change in how I relate to my mate, to my children, in the workplace, to my finances, to my stuff, to my schedule. It's going to change everything, which is why we're reluctant. But remember this. He is your father in heaven. So you should not fear surrendering complete control of your life to him. It is an insult to God when we give him partial surrender. It says, I am not trusting him. 
Verse 11, then he goes on to say this. So the first set is Godward. Second set is earthly needs. He says, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive those who are our debtors. That, to me, is a frightening statement. Forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I think the last thought of the Lord's Prayer is something like this. Come like a child. Surrender everything to him. And trust him to meet your needs. See, the reason often that we are not surrendering everything to God is because we don't trust him. That's why we wrestle with obedience. Wrestle with fixing broken relationships. We don't know what the outcome, we don't know what the cost is going to be. And so we maintain control and stifle joy in God. First thing that Jesus says is, give us this day our daily bread. The idea here is very beautiful. It literally means something like, give us bread for the day. In the Old Testament, Israel experienced the blessing of manna from God. It was God's provision of bread for the day. The only directive that they were given in relationship to manna was this. Don't store it. Because if you do, it will become infested with maggots and corrupted. Why did God do that? Why did he give them bread every day and forbade them to save it up and store it up? Okay, I think the answer is found in this context. I believe it's verse 19 of Matthew 6. What does it say? Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Why? Because I want you to trust me. Folks, this is, this is a challenging statement in our culture. Because we live with such abundance. And I'm going to be honest with you. We, have, we wrestle with what it means to give abundantly to God and to trust him to provide bread for the day. It's, we, you, you will wrestle with this. Don't keep so much that you don't have to trust God. That's the idea in the Old Testament with manna. Eat what you have for the day. There's going to be a little extra left around. And if you're, if you're stingy and you're careful, you want to pick up those couple of extra pieces thinking it won't matter. But what does God do? God, ta- he, he destroys it. Israel takes up a little more of the manna and he corrupts it. They have to go out the next day and get his provision. You know what Jesus is saying? Give us this day our daily bread. He's saying, trust me to meet your daily needs. So we're asking and trusting God for his provision The next thought is we're trusting him for his forgiveness with the understanding that there is a direct connection between what God does and what you do in relationship to forgiveness. If I harbor bitterness and resentment in my heart, I will not find myself freed from the bondage of sin and resentment in my own life. Okay, God says, you forgive others, I'll forgive you. Okay, and there is, in a sense, a fascinating reciprocal relationship that comes out here. One writer put it this way. He said, no one is fit to pray the Lord's Prayer or along the lines of this model so long as the unforgiving spirit holds sway in his heart. I can't connect with God if I am harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards those around me. Perhaps that's why the Pharisees thought they had to give God a show to break his reluctance. Because the truth of their heart meant that God wasn't going to respond to their prayers. And so they had to wear them down another way because they didn't know the gospel of grace. The last thing that Jesus tells us to pray for is for God's protection in our lives. 
Verse 13, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Learn to trust God for provision, for forgiveness, and for protection. Because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When you come before God in prayer, remember, it's not a show. He's not reluctant. I don't have to earn his favor. He gives me a simple model for prayer in which we surrender ourselves completely to his glorious, abundant, and gracious provision. And how does that provision come? He says, cry out, our Father. Call upon the name of the Lord. The Old Testament says this. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are saved. God wants us to come before him in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and enjoy his blessings and benefits. We come just as we are. Let God change you. Let him bring his kingdom into your life. Admit your need and find his amazing mercy. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It all starts with God. Our relationship with him, coming to him as father, begins with a cry of the heart that says, God, I am in desperate need because of my sin. I come like the publican comes in need of mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. And what does the text then say in Luke 18? It says, this man went down to his house justified, free from his sin, because he put on a show? No, because he was honest with God about his need. You may be here this morning and you may listen to a discussion about prayer and say, I would love to know what it is to have a personal relationship with God where I connect with him, where my life and God intersect as my father. But I don't know that. The first prayer you need to pray is not the Lord's Prayer. Okay, the first prayer you need to pray is this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, on the merit of Jesus Christ shed blood, forgive me of my sin and bring me into your Family, make me your son. Make me your daughter. Change my life forever. Come just as you are. Pray to your father and keep your prayer life simple but fervent and regular. And when you come, come boldly to the throne of grace where you can find help in your time of need. And the refrain of this passage is something like this. And he will reward you. The reward that the religious leaders got was the acknowledgement of men. The reward that children of God have is the acknowledgement and provision of God. So my encouragement to you is this today is this. Communicate with your heavenly father or cry out to the great God of heaven and ask him to forgive you of your sin and trust in Jesus. And once you know him, cultivate a relationship cultivate times in your life where your life is intersecting with God and you are communicating with him because when you do his promise is this i will reward you which in context is i'll answer your prayers i'll meet your needs i'll help you to do my will i'll help you to forgive those that sin against you i'll protect you from the evil one rest in trust in surrender to me let's bow our heads in prayer this morning